Peace be with you. Please stay standing for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Hannah. Well, he is risen. He is risen. He has risen indeed. Welcome tonight to our uh, six o'clock Easter service. I pray that a song will be sung or words spoken uh, tonight that will enrich your life in Christ Jesus. If you are first time guests, I want to say welcome. My name is Jamal and I have the joy of bringing the word to you tonight. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn and we're thrilled that you are here tonight and I believe that the Lord has a word for you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive right into the text. Holy Father, we are in desperate need of a word from you this Resurrection Sunday evening. I pray, Father God, that you would allow me to be in the Spirit as I proclaim your word. And I pray for these, your hearers, that you would allow their attention to be on your word and that you would supernaturally move in their hearts like only you can do, even now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, uh, I want to state the obvious, but life can be hard. It can be as hard as a frozen field in the middle of winter. And some of our faith has become a little shaken as a result of the difficulties, the drama, the disappointments of life. And so even though it's Resurrection Sunday and it's a joyous occasion, we want to admit what is true. Sometimes life stinks. Some of us, we found ourselves in the midst of these difficulties asking tough questions to ourselves and to God. We ask questions like, why would God allow a global pandemic that harms so many people? 
what's wrong with humanity that we can hurt each other like Russia is hurting Ukraine. And what makes it even harder, and I'm just speaking for myself and maybe you can testify too, is that some of the most difficult things that happen in life um, don't just happen out there, but they happen in here. They happen in the church. If you're like me, sometimes the best thing you can do in the midst of all the difficulties that's happening in the body of Christ, all the drama and disappointments, you find yourself simply saying, what in the little Richie is going on? And y'all may say, I've never said those words before. Well, that's what I say when I'm confused. What in the little Richie is going on, all right? But sometimes even the church can leave us baffled and confused in the way that people act. And as a result, this dynamic has worn us out. It has resulted in many of us having a a shaky period in our faith. It has resulted in many of us being shaky in our work for the Lord and even shaky regarding our hope. And my hope tonight is, is that the Lord would give a word to you who feel shaky, And that by the end of the service that you will feel steadfast. My my hope tonight is for the person whose faith is waning that the Lord would reestablish that faith and make you immovable. In Psalm chapter 25 verse 1, we read these powerful words, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. It remains forever. And that is my hope for you tonight as as you leave this sanctuary, that you will become like Mount Zion because you are putting your trust in the Lord despite disappointments, despite drama, despite difficulties. On 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, this is Paul later in the chapter after the first 11 verses that we read, this is what he concludes. And this is really the direction of our sermon. He writes this, therefore, my brothers, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you see that word immovable? It's the only time in the New Testament that this This word is used, and all week long as I was preparing for this Resurrection Sunday, this word just stuck out to me, and it just stalked me every morning, in the middle of the day, and at night, and I just heard the Lord telling me to encourage you to become immovable. And the question is, how do we get to that place of being like Mount Zion? How do we get to a place where we aren't moving from place to place depending upon life's disappointment? How do we get to a place of being steadfast? How do we get to a place of being not tossed to and fro by different winds of doctrine? How do we get to a place of excelling, as 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, excelling in the Lord's work, not just doing the Lord's work, but excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that our labor is not in vain. How do we become immovable? Well, it's pretty simple, but it's not simplistic. And we're going to see in today's text this challenge from the Apostle Paul, and it's this, 
We become immovable by receiving, believing, and holding on to, listen to this, the true gospel of Jesus Christ to the end. That's the message. We become immovable. We become like Mount Zion by receiving, believing, and holding on to the true gospel of Christ until the end. Immovable Christians are those who believe in the true gospel, which must include the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These Christians receive, believe, and hold on to the gospel, listen to this, without editing the gospel until the end. Holding on to the gospel means we refuse to edit it. We believe it as the Lord has given it to us. The gospel does not need Grammarly. I love Grammarly. It's probably my favorite app. It has saved me from looking silly plenty of times. Now, it also has made me look silly plenty of times. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what I said. But the true gospel does not need Grammarly. It does not need to be edited. And so we're just going to answer two simple questions by looking at the text that we originally read. The first is this, what are the key ingredients of the true gospel? And the second question I want to answer is, what are common ways that people edit the gospel? And so today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, a church that is dear to his heart, but a church that was quite frankly just straight up wilding out. If 1 Corinthians, the church at 1 Corinth, or at Corinth, excuse me, had been placed in the 21st century, there would be a documentary about them being exposed. This church was straight up messy. If you've never read the book of 1 Corinthians, I want to encourage you to just go home and read it. And what you'll find in the book of 1 Corinthians is the first two chapters, Paul starts off nice and calm. He's like, grace and peace be to you. He washes them with the gospel of grace, and he talks about the gospel in chapter 2. And then for the next, I don't know, 13 chapters, he's confronting them about things that they are doing wrong. But he's doing it in love and with the gospel. But the reason that Paul is addressing them here in chapter 15 towards the end of his gospel as he's getting down to the root of most of their drama. And the root of most of their drama is that they have been editing the gospel. They have been making little changes here and little changes there, and it has resulted in a very messy church. They were not immovable. And Paul wants them to become immovable. They were slowly drifting away from Christ. So what is the true gospel? Real quick, I'm going to tell you these elements. Let's look at the text. The Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 1, Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Let's stop there. So here the Apostle Paul is going to give us the most foundational interpretation of what the gospel is. When we look in the New Testament, we can say a lot of things about what the gospel is, but he's going to say this is the most foundational. 
If you are going to be a Christian, this is the most basic level of believing. And the first thing he mentions, which a lot of times we actually skip over, is that the gospel begins with Christ. He says, Christ, Christ, Christ is the gospel. Or Christ means anointed one, Messiah. And it points the readers back to God's promised king who will restore all things. It's Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul starts off the book by telling the church at Corinth, yo, when I came to you, I came preaching to you Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with the philosophies of man. I didn't come with eloquent speech. I came to you preaching Christ. The story is told of a church that had a beautiful stained glass window behind the pulpit. It was a small chapel. And there was a, a, a preacher who was the main pastor at this church who was pretty tall, and he would stand week in and week out in front of this beautiful stained glass uh, uh, picture of Jesus. And one Sunday, he was out, and there was a guest preacher. And the guest preacher was really short. And a little girl listened to this guest preacher preach, and then she leaned over to her mother and said, what happened to the tall preacher that stood in front of Jesus? <laughs> what happened to the small, tall preacher that stood in front of Jesus? Too many pulpits in America have preachers that stand in front of Jesus. Too many people hear the gospel preached, but Jesus is not at the center. If Jesus is not at the center of the sermon, if Jesus is not at the center of the message, if Jesus is not at the center of the worship service, then you are not receiving the gospel. The gospel is not good principles. The gospel isn't pragmatism. The gospel isn't do-it-yourselfism. The gospel is about Jesus. Jesus is the beginning of the gospel, the middle of the gospel, and the end of the gospel. And Jesus must be the beginning of our sermons, the middle of our sermons, and the end of our sermons. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. Mark chapter 1. Mark is writing to the church and he says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the good news. But how do people try to edit Jesus? How do people try to grammarly the gospel? Well, the Bible teaches us some things about Jesus that we cannot change. To edit these things about Jesus means to alter the gospel. To alter the gospel means that if we believe in that false gospel, that we do not belong to Jesus. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is 100% man. It also teaches us that Jesus is 100% God. It teaches that Jesus is all-powerful. It teaches that he is the all-restoring Messiah. It teaches us that he is not simply a good teacher, not simply a prophet, not simply gentle and meek, and not a, a simply a mild friend. Jesus is the king of the universe who is both Savior and Lord. And if we added any of those things, if we added the fact that he's 100% divine or 100% human 
we edit the good news. If we treat Jesus as if he is our savior, but he is not our Lord, we edit the gospel. The gospel is about Christ and we cannot edit him. But listen to what Christ came to do. Paul continues to say, Christ died for our sins and was buried. This is the true gospel. And receiving, believing, and holding firm to these words is what saves us. He died for our sins and was buried. Now, this may seem really simple to you, and you may be tempted to daydream at this point and think about the dinner that you just had and how that apple pie was hidden right. But I'm going to encourage you to bring it back in. Because when we start assuming that somebody stole my car, y'all hear that? When we start assuming that, I've got the attention span of a gnat. Stay focused, Jamal. When we start assuming the gospel and parts of the gospel, we will slowly edit the gospel, right? So it says Christ died for our sins. Some people edit the gospel by saying that Christ didn't really die. And this is what Muslims believe. They believe that Jesus did something that they call he swooned. It's the swoon theory. It means that Jesus actually went down the Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrow. He went to Golgotha's hill. He was crucified. They thought he was dead. But then somebody, maybe Nicodemus, gave Jesus a pep talk, kind of like uh, Mickey from Rocky. Get up, you bum, right? And Jesus woke up. Though he was injured, and he pulled this hoax on people so that they thought that he was actually God. That's what Muslims believe. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, no, he, <laughs> the man actually died. He did not pull a Tupac or a Machiavelli. He died. He died. And then he says, listen, not only did he die, but he died. Oh, y'all. He says he died for our sins. He died for our sins. He became our propitiation. He became our ransom. He stood in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve. And beloved ones, too many of us, we want to edit the gospel right here. And the reason that we are not immovable and we are not experiencing the power of God is because we're not allowing the gospel to do what the gospel does and the gospel to be what the gospel is. In order for the gospel to do what the gospel does and be what the gospel is, we have to admit that we are sinners. Some of us, we want to take sin out of our vocabulary where we say, you know what? I just committed a boo-boo. Or that's just how I am. Or that's just my personality. And we want to edit the gospel by diminishing sin and its seriousness. But the Bible tells us that our sin separates us from God and that because God is holy, that our sin deserves death. The Bible says that Christ died for our sins. And notice what Paul does here in this text. He tells us why. He says, and he gives us confidence that Jesus did it by saying, in accordance to the scriptures, in accordance to the scriptures. 
I love what Mark Dever says about editing sin. He says this, he says, when we do this, when we edit sin out and we try to diminish it and, and make it less of a deal, he says, the cross becomes merely tragedy and injustice. An example of love, a sign that God understands our pain, it is all of those things, but supremely, it is the place where God himself bore our sins so that we might be forgiven. So that we might be forgiven. He died for our sins in accordance to the scripture. His death was our ransom. B.B. Warfield reminds us that our Lord's life of humiliation was not his misfortune, but his achievement. And that he was never the victim, but always the master of his circumstances. Meaning that Jesus could have called down a legion of angels to free him from the crucifixion and from death, but he did not allow that to happen. He was in complete control at all times, and he willingly chose the path of the cross so that you and I can be redeemed because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As the great hymnist wrote, I see the scourges tear his back. I see the piercing crown. And of the crowd who smite and mock, I feel that I am one. Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not less the blood avails to cleanse away my sin. And not the less the cross prevails to give me peace within. The gospel actually enables us to look at our sin without fear, without guilt, without shame, and without condemnation. We can say, I am a sinner. We can say like Paul, I am the chief among sinners and still have hope and joy because Jesus died for our sin. And he tells us to come boldly before his throne of grace when we sin. Why? Because he died so that we could have access to his forgiveness and mediation. Romans 5, 6a says this, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as I said, the text constantly says, as according to the scriptures, Isaiah 53, go home and read it. Psalm 16, go home and read it. It was prophesied that the Messiah would suffer and die. Now, there's a rumor that I need to address. And uh, the rumor is, I wasn't here, but I heard that on Good Friday, our praise team sang about Jesus, and it was beautiful. And I heard, so it's just a rumor, I hadn't listened yet, but I heard that Pastor Timothy Paul Jones by the power of the Spirit, murked it. Y'all know what murked it means? Murdered it. It's not like murder, murder in a bad way. It's like a good murder, like killing a cow to get the finest piece of steak and cooking it murder, right? I heard that he brought the word and he talked about the death of Christ. And since this is Resurrection Sunday, I now want to talk about the resurrection. Is that all right? Let's look at the text. 
After talking about how Christ died for our sins and according to the scripture, he says this, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. The, the scriptures points us back to the Old Testament, points us back to uh, God saying that uh, his son would not see decay and not see death. The Apostle Paul also goes on to testify that there were over 500 people who saw a risen Jesus. And he's writing to the church at Corinth just a, a few decades later. And he says, listen, you can go and verify it. You can go and verify it. People saw Jesus all at one time. He appeared to the disciples. And here's what's crazy. Outside of the Bible, you go and you read a Jewish historians, you read Roman history, and they will tell you that something happened in Jerusalem that changed devout Jewish people into little Christ. Something happened that a, a group of people who believed in one God, Yahweh, suddenly believed in one God, but became Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Something happened that would allow this crazy group of people to face social diminishment, suffering, and even death while holding on to this gospel. And I'm telling you what happened. What happened is they saw a resurrected Jesus. And that's why we're here today, because the tomb is empty, y'all. And Paul says, listen, this resurrected Jesus, not only did he appear to the 500, not only can you come talk to Nuke Nuke and Bebe and them, and, and will they testify and say that we saw it, but listen, he appeared to me. He says, listen, I was persecuting the church. I was adamantly against the church. And Jesus, the resurrection Jesus, he stopped me in my tracks and he caused me to do a 180. And now I became immovable for him, more zealous for him than I was even for the law. Because Paul saw a resurrected Jesus. Now, this is what Paul is going to argue through the rest of the book, the uh, chapter. I don't have time to unpack it, but he's going to make a very important argument to the church of Corinth because he is saying the reason y'all are so shaky, so drama-filled, so disappointed-laden, so wishy-washy is because you've edited the gospel. Here's what they were doing. Some in Corinth were starting to say, you know what? Jesus didn't really bodily raise from the dead. This is just some hyperbola. This is some mysticism. Uh, this is something that they, this is just kind of legend. And you can still be a Christian without believing in a bodily resurrection. And there are people today who believe that. I, I know people, my wife and I, we just had a conversation with someone that we know who have, have stopped believing in the miraculous nature of the Bible and who have now uh, reduced the Bible to being good stories, myths to inspire. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus. And this is what Paul is saying. The reason y'all are tripping so much, the reason you are not immovable is because you've made these grammarly edits to the gospel. And he says, and if the resurrection is not real, he makes this argument. He says this, if the resurrection is not real, verse 14, our preaching is in vain, 
He says, our faith is useless. The apostles are liars. There's no forgiveness of sins. Believers who died are lost. They're not in eternal life, verse 18. And then he says, we as Christians are to be pitied amongst all because we are going to suffer in this life and die and not have hope. But Paul is going to argue the opposite. And so we can just reverse engineer all those statements and see that if the resurrection is true, our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is effective and powerful. The apostles are pillars of truth. We are forgiven, and all who have died in Christ have eternal life. Paul goes on to talk about what it looks like to live in light of the resurrection as a Christian. And he goes on to give them hope, saying that because Christ is raised from the dead, we too one day will be raised from the dead. We will trade in these bodies of uh, these mortal bodies for bodies that are immortal, bodies that do not fade. So my encouragement to you is, is hold on to the true gospel. Don't edit it. If you edit it, you lose it. And a little editing is like anthrax. It is deadly. It is deadly. Don't edit the gospel by believing the prosperity gospel. God doesn't exist to make your dreams come true. You exist to bring him glory. Don't edit the gospel by believing the halfway gospel, that if I just meet God halfway, he'll meet me halfway. The gospel is, beloved, that you cannot meet God halfway. You're not strong enough. You're not pure enough. The gospel is, is that God has to come and get you and breathe life into you. And that the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is recognizing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Don't edit the gospel by saying that there are multiple ways to God. Jesus made it very clear that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one will come to the Father but through him. He died so that you would have a chance to eternal life through him. Don't edit the gospel by believing a gospel of nationalism, ethnocentrism, or narcissism, believing that the world revolves around you. All of these are false gospels. This text calls us to do Three things. Verse 15, one. Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. We are saved if we confessed and placed our faith in Jesus. We have been justified by faith alone, but we also are being saved, and we also will be saved. Those who are saved are those who persevere to the end, holding on to the good news of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? We receive this gospel, we believe this gospel, and we hold firmly to the gospel. We hold firmly to the gospel. Let's close by looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. 
Therefore, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast. Or steadfast means to, to, to stay put under trial. That's what steadfastness is. It's the ability to stay put. It's the ability when you are disappointed, when you are hurt, when your emotions is, is leading you away from Jesus to be, to stay put. And God is committed to your steadfastness. And that's what he's doing. He allows trials to come your way. He allows situations to come your way so that you can go through those situations and learn and see over and over again that he is faithful. And when the next situation comes, you've got a little more muscle because you know that God is able to provide for you. God is able to protect you and keep you. He says, be steadfast, be immovable. Be like Mount Zion. I love this. Always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your work is not in vain. And some of us here today, I just want you to know, for some of us, it's our first time in a church since 2019. And I just want you to know that the Lord welcomes you that I welcome. I am so happy. God is so happy that you are here sitting under the word of God and he's not judging you. He's not here to beat you up. He is inviting you with welcome arms, but he also wants me to encourage you through his word to become immovable. And the way that you become immovable is not by white knuckling it. It's not by beating yourself up. It's by looking to Jesus. It's by fixing your eyes on the one who defeated death and sin. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? As you keep your eyes on Jesus and then you're able to say like Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It is God's grace that transforms you as you fix your eyes on Jesus. But the goal should be for every Christian to abound, to excel in the work of the Lord. When we come to see a resurrected Jesus, we are given hearts that want to live for him and serve for him. Not simply exist for him, but to excel for him. And your excelling for him is not my excelling for him. Your excelling for him is not you standing behind a pulpit more than likely. Your excelling for him may be you being faithful to love your neighbor, to love your place of work, to go into that place as a light of Christ. Your excelling for him may be you using your gift of writing or art or coaching or teaching to draw other people to him. Your excelling to him may be the gift of encouragement or hospitality. God is calling you to do that. Can I close with a very personal story? Thank you. <laughs> so this week, normally uh, on Holy Week, or as our great preacher last week called it Humble Week, as preachers, we like to clear our schedule as much as we can to, to really just have time to to give thoughtful words, a thoughtful sermon. And that was, that was my intention. And uh, unfortunately, a close uncle of mine passed last week. 
And this close uncle of mine lives in Chicago, and I have a big, beautiful, bold family. And they said, hey, we're going to do the funeral on Good Friday. And I said, all right. So I flew to Chicago on Thursday, spent Friday with the family, came back uh, yesterday. And my uncle, whose name is Calvin, we call him KB, uh, his last name is Baldrige, he was an incredibly generous man. Ever since I was little, he just spoke life into me. He gave to people generously, both financially, words, presence. He was an amazing uncle. But something happened to my uncle in 2013. He went into the hospital for a routine surgery, and he came out paralyzed from the legs down because of a mistake by the surgeon, and he would never walk again. And my uncle, he, uh, he died unexpectedly last week due to that complication. But as I was... Uh, officiating the service and helped eulogize him, I was taken back by testimony after testimony after testimony of how he impacted people. He impacted people with his generosity, with his love, and with his presence. But specifically, I was taken back by his children who are now adults and how each of them came to the mic and they talked about how in 2013, after he lost his mobility, it was seeing his response to losing his mobility that caused them to take their faith serious. They said he had times where he was depressed and he was down and he was imperfect, just like we all were, he was human. But they said, even though he became paralyzed, he never once, never once blamed God. And he used his immobility as an opportunity to share the gospel with others and to tell them about the joy that Jesus can give. He used his disability to become Christ's ability to reach other people. And I'm just thinking about my uncle and the nine years since then, every time how I went home, how we never I never had one conversation with him about his inability to walk. The whole time, he masterfully stepped into my world, asked me questions, loved me, made it about Jesus's presence in my life, and then I would leave and go and say, I forgot to ask him how he's doing. <laughs> and it's powerful. The question is, what can make someone that immovable? What can make someone that steadfast that they lose their mobility, but they continue to be a joy-filled, Christ-loving presence? Then his pastor got up, and he did what anyone would do at a funeral. He went to his Facebook page, and he showed one of his last posts that he made on February 7th. And here is one of the last posts that my uncle made. There are 4,200 world religion, but there's only one empty tomb. 
There's only one man who conquered sin, death, and hell forever. There's only one way to heaven, and his name is Jesus. What made my uncle immovable was that he believed in an empty tomb. What made my uncle's faith immovable is that he believed in an immutable God, a God who does not change despite disappointments, despite drama, despite pain. What made him immovable is he believed that the tomb was empty and that one day he would walk again. He knew that sin and death and malpractice would not have the final word. He knew that he was a part of a greater story where God was making everything sad become untrue. He knew that trauma would not have the last word. He had hope in his resurrected Jesus. And my question is, do you? Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.